Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. For thousands of years, historical evidence suggested that these three kingdoms were the only superpowers of the ancient Middle East. They were the cornerstones of Western civilization, the precursor to Macedonian and Roman rule. In the 18th century, an influx of European archaeological expeditions in the Middle East unearthed the ruins of these vast ancient empires and seemed, at first, to verify this assumption. But then, in the early 19th century, a young French explorer found fragments which sported a language previously unknown to archaeologists of the time. It wasn't Egyptian. It wasn't Babylonian. It wasn't Assyrian. The method of the inscription, cuneiform, a shape-based writing set into clay tablets, seemed to indicate that this civilization existed at the same time as the three known ancient empires. As expeditions widened and more tablets were found, explorers began to realize that they may have stumbled onto all that remained of a fourth empire, the Hittite Empire. The discovery raised an alarming but simple question. Where did the Hittites go? What happened to their civilization that caused nearly all traces of them to be eradicated from the face of the earth? Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone on the Parcast Network. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find previous episodes as well as Parcast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. In this episode, we're looking into the Hittites, an ancient civilization of immense power and influence that likely played a major role in the ancient world. For a long time, the ancient empires of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon were considered to be the birthplaces of modern civilization. The discovery of the Hittites and their capital city of Hattusa challenged these assumptions. All of a sudden, it seemed possible that there existed a society more powerful and more ancient than Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon. But if this great empire did exist, then what happened to the Hittites? How is it possible that they eluded archaeologists for hundreds of years, even as Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon were being unearthed? To answer these questions, we'll start our investigation with the discovery of the Hittites' capital city of Hattusa in the early part of the 20th century. With the location of Hattusa established, the history of the Hittite people began to unfold. We'll examine their culture, customs, religion, ingenuity, and the military might that made them a formidable foe. 
Lastly, we'll explore the theories of how such a vast empire with centuries of amassed history could simply vanish from the archives of recorded time. Our story begins in 1834, when French explorer Charles Texier was in central Turkey on an expedition to locate the lost Roman city of Tavium. Tavium had been a major trading post and a crossroads of the Roman Empire. During his search, Texier came upon the village of Boeskoi and was told by the locals about some nearby ruins. At these ruins, Texier found sculptured stones, a wall, and the remnants of a massive city that stretched over a couple hundred acres. Texier was knowledgeable of ancient maps of Rome and knew that the settlement was too large to be Tavium. Texier was baffled. Previously, no known ancient nation had been recognized to have occupied this remote area of Turkey. Texier made note of the bizarre discovery, but returned home without any answers as to where the mysterious city would have come from. In 1862, another Frenchman named Georges Perrault read about Texier's find and traveled to Boiscoy to examine the ruins for himself. Among the remains of this unknown city, on a rock face known locally as the Nishantash, was a lengthy inscription. Perrault couldn't identify the language. In fact, none of the locals from the surrounding area could translate it. Perrault, like Texier, returned home with no substantial answers as to what ancient civilization had resided in the city. There were no leads as to the mystery of the nameless city for 14 years. But in 1876, at an excavation hundreds of miles away in the ancient site of Carchemish, Syria, a group of archaeologists were surprised to unearth more stones with the same mysterious language that Perrault had discovered in the ruins near Boazkoy. More stones bearing the mysterious writing were uncovered in the city of Smyrna on the west coast of Turkey. It started to become clear that given how spread out these stones were, Whatever civilization they originated from had been massive, likely stretching from Mesopotamia to Syria and most of Asia Minor. But scholars of the time still had absolutely no idea who these ancient people could have been. In 1880, at a meeting of the Society of Biblical Archaeology in London, Archibald Henry Sace, a scholar of philology, proposed a bold theory. After extensive research of ancient Assyrian and Babylonian texts, as well as the Old Testament itself, Sace had come to the conclusion that the mysterious language belonged to a people mentioned in the Bible, called the Hittites. The Hittites are referenced in the King James Version of the Bible a total of 46 times. Some of these references even note how the Hittites fit among the other civilizations of the ancient world. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17, when the Israelites were about to occupy the Promised Land after fleeing Egypt, the nations who were present are mentioned. The Hittites were counted among these nations. In Kings chapter 7, verse 6, the Syrian army, which was laying siege to Samaria, retreated when they heard the noise of chariots and horses of a great army. The soldiers said to one another, Look! The king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. The Bible identified the Hittites as a powerful empire. 
But since seemingly no trace of them had been found in nearly 2,000 years, they were considered by most historians to be either a myth or a stand-in for an actual historical civilization. Sace's theory was controversial and was met with significant backlash. Despite his meticulous research and his learned conjecture, he really had no solid proof to back up his assertion. It would be over two decades until that proof was found. In the early 1900s, Hugo Winkler, a German historian based in Istanbul, was one of the people who believed Sace's theory. He was convinced that this mysterious language could be the proof of a fourth lost empire. Intrigued by the mystery, Winkler decided to take a crack at the puzzle nobody had been able to solve. Winkler was a philologist, a scholar of ancient writing, and he was considered brilliant among those in his field. His specific focus was on the ancient Middle East. He was able to read many ancient languages, including most notably cuneiform. Cuneiform is one of the world's earliest systems of writings that used edged, shaped marks made on a soft clay tablet with a reed or stylus. When the tablet dried, it left an inscription. The mysterious language that was found in the various areas of Turkey and Syria was written in cuneiform, but nobody, including Winkler, could understand the writing. Think of it this way. The English alphabet offers 26 letters which are combined to form words and sentences. But if those same letters are strung together in another combination, they can form words you don't recognize. This was the dilemma Winkler faced. Throughout his life, Winkler was always on the lookout for examples of the mysterious language. He even asked friends and colleagues to bring him any unusual writings they might come upon with the hope of finding a clue that could finally help him. Then, in 1905, Theodore Macready, a curator of the Ottoman Museum in Istanbul and one of Winkler's colleagues, came through with a key piece in the search for the lost Fourth Empire. Macready brought Winkler a baked clay tablet that had come into his possession from a recent expedition at the ruins near Boeskoy. The tablet was inscribed with the same mysterious cuneiform writing assumed to have come from the Hittites. Winkler had trouble believing that the tablets featuring the mysterious language had originated in Boeskoy. Central Anatolia, a region of modern-day Turkey, was an extremely remote landscape. At the time, it was believed that there was nothing of significance there. To make matters worse, Anatolia wasn't even in the Middle East where the three great empires were located. But the authenticity of the tablet and the similar strange cuneiform writing were too enticing to ignore. So in 1906, Winkler headed off to Anatolia and the remote location where Macready's expedition had found the clay tablet. As they traveled deeper into Anatolia, Winkler found himself possessed with serious doubts about their chances of finding anything noteworthy. He was sure he was on a wild goose chase. However, when Winkler reached the site where the clay tablet was found near Boazkoy, all his doubts were put to rest. Laying his eyes on an imposing stone gateway with two lions to either side, Winkler knew he'd found something extraordinary. The stone lions that presided on each side of the gate's entrance stood over 10 feet tall. 
The sheer size of the carving, as well as its style, differed from anything Winkler had seen before. The site would come to be known as the Lion Gate. The site past the gate seemed to be the remains of a vast city that stretched out for miles in every direction. The areas seemed to hold the remains and foundations of a huge city, sported by walls, towers, temples, and other buildings. Winkler knew right away that this was the work of an advanced civilization, one that had remained hidden from the world until now. In 1906, Winkler and his team set up camp and started to explore the area, hoping to discover the origins of this city. As they dug, they uncovered more clay tablets with the mysterious cuneiform writing, which they believed to belong to some larger store of archives. But in order to decipher the secrets of the mysterious language, Winkler required an example in a language he could understand. He needed something to make a comparison to in order to give him a jumping-off point. After searching for weeks, the team's efforts were finally rewarded when they found a tablet that featured both the mysterious language and a second language, a language that Hugo Winkler could read, Babylonian. And just like that, Winkler had found a way to potentially solve the mystery of the Hittites. We'll cover Winkler's translation of the mysterious language after this. Now back to the story. In 1906, German historian Hugo Winkler had at last found a clay tablet featuring both the mysterious and unknown language of what he assumed was the Hittites and inscriptions in Babylonian, a language he understood. By the 14th century BCE, Babylonian had become the language of international diplomacy throughout the Middle East. It was a stroke of luck for Winkler and his team to have come across this specific tablet. The Babylonian part of the tablet read, The treaty which Ramses the great king, the king of Egypt, made with Hattusili, the great king, king of the Hatti, in order to establish a great peace and great brotherhood between them forever. In the ancient world, the term great king was only used to refer to the kings of the three great empires, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. But in this peace treaty, a fourth great king is mentioned, Hattusili of the Hatti. The legible part of the treaty dated it to around the 20th year of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. That would have been around 1259 BCE. This tablet was an authentic peace treaty, which confirmed the existence of a lost fourth empire of people known as the Hittites, and that the ruins in Anatolia was their capital city of Hattusa. The tablet came to be known as the Egyptian-Hittite Peace Treaty. A replica of the treaty is currently on display at the United Nations, and it holds a special reverence as one of the world's earliest peace treaties known to exist in writing. Hugo Winkler's partial deciphering of the treaty in 1906 proved the existence of the Fourth Empire. But the question still remained about how a seemingly vast empire vanished from history so completely. After all, archaeologists had been uncovering relics from the ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, and Assyrian empires for centuries. Why had no one until this point found significant remnants of the Hittites? The Hittites could have been vanquished by an enemy who destroyed evidence of their existence. As was often the case, it was the victors who wrote the history books. 
Another possibility was that a cataclysmic event like an earthquake brought about the end of the ancient empire. But such an occurrence wouldn't explain why all evidence of the Hittites was missing. Some remnants would have in all likelihood survived. The answer was in the mysterious language of the Hittites. To learn about their history, that language would have to be translated. Winkler had found the Egyptian-Hittite peace treaty and proven the existence of the Hittites. But this only led to more questions. The most pressing mystery was the Hittite language. Winkler and his fellow linguists had assumed that the key to deciphering it was to find another Middle Eastern civilization with a similar language and to compare the two. But Winkler's search yielded no real matches. The absence of notable artifacts at the ruins of Hattusa was also baffling. Relics such as tools, artwork, jewelry, clothing, and weapons tended to be buried among the remains of ancient cities. This had certainly been the case for Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. But Hattusa appeared to have been looted long ago. Finally, the location of Hattusa itself seemed to defy any easy explanation. The city was in a particularly remote location, which was unusual for major urban centers of that era. Despite these outstanding mysteries, the investigation was just beginning. Winkler's discovery brought Hattusa to the attention of the German Oriental Society, a group of archaeologists who focused on excavating ruins of civilizations in the Near and Middle Eastern worlds. The Society worked with Winkler from 1906 to 1913 to unearth the city's remains and learn what they could about the mysterious Hittites, which, over seven years, turned out to be a great deal. The first riddle to solve was the Hattusa's location. Most major cities of the ancient world were located on or near major trade routes or ports. Hattusa was 50 miles from a major river, cut off from the Black Sea by mountains, 250 miles from the eastern Mediterranean Sea, and landlocked between two large mountain ranges. The city was also perched high above in the barren hills, where the climate was particularly harsh. The high altitude meant the city would have been snowed in for several months of the year. For all intents and purposes, Hattusa was completely isolated. But the Hittites didn't choose this location on a whim. In the decades that followed Hattusa's discovery, archaeologists would come to understand that the city's isolated location was very intentional and quite ingenious. The Hittites didn't want to have their city on a trade route. Rather, their aim was to make their capital an impregnable fortress that would last forever. The Hittites took advantage of the natural mountain terrain to build Hattusa, using the landscape to their advantage. They carved into the rock face itself, built across steep ravines, and constructed their walls against the edges of sheer cliffs. Unlike the typical ancient capital cities of the time, the Hittites valued defensive capabilities over economics. This would seem to lend credence to the Hittites' war-focused society. An outer wall, comprised mostly of towers, surrounded the entire city. It was four miles long and sported towers every few feet. The construction of this wall was unique to the ancient world and demonstrated the Hittites' ingenuity. It was hollowed out and filled with a mixture of earth and sand. When pounded, the mixture hardened, like concrete, and greatly increased its durability. 
Because of this great barrier, the city was only accessible by eight heavily fortified gates. Each of these gates were built to function as traps against unwanted intruders. The main gate was adorned with sphinxes and presented an impressive sight to all those who approached. The entrance led to a long tunnel that led out into an inner courtyard protected by an interior gate. An invading army would be hard-pressed to make it into the city proper without sustaining massive casualties. Water was provided to the city from seven natural springs located in the hills above Hattusa. The Hittites had built a rudimentary system of clay pipes to bring in water and store it in vast storage facilities. One of these cisterns held enough water to meet the needs of 10,000 people for a year. Within the city walls, archaeologists found the remains of a massive temple with 200 rooms and a pyramid 850 feet wide. At the center of the city was the king's castle, known as the Buyakale. It measured 650 by 500 feet and overlooked the entirety of Hattusa. There was one find that was of particular importance, a hidden labyrinth that contained five enormous libraries. These were some of the oldest and largest libraries ever to be found in the ancient world. These archives housed over 30,000 clay tablets, meticulously filed and cataloged. The entire history of the Hittites resided in these libraries, the story of a civilization lost to time. Unfortunately, the fundamental problems still remained. By 1913, after years of investigating the ruins and studying the cuneiform tablets from the archives, no one had yet been able to crack the Hittite language. Winkler and his fellow archaeologists had learned a great deal over the years about the Hittites' engineering capabilities. But even after seven years, they still knew very little about the customs, religion, or culture of the Hittites. Sadly, Hugo Winkler died in 1913. Though he had succeeded in proving Archibald Sace's theory of the Hittites' existence, he went to his grave having failed to crack the ancient language. The greatest secrets of the Hittites remained. However, just two years later, in 1915, there was a breakthrough. Bedrick Rosny was a young but renowned Czech scholar of ancient languages. He had made a name for himself unearthing and deciphering lost languages on expeditions in Palestine and Turkey, and had even gained some broader fame after he discovered, translated, and published a 5,000-year-old recipe for Sumerian beer. Following Winkler's death, Hrozny took on the task of cracking the Hittite language. Among the thousands of lines of Hittite cuneiform in the libraries of Hattusa, it was the discovery of a single sentence that would be the crucial piece Rosny needed to accomplish what others failed to do for close to a decade. First, Rosny noticed a cuneiform symbol for bread, which was common in many of the ancient languages. But what he found next was completely unexpected. There was a word on the tablet that seemed to be in English or something like English. The word was wa'atar, meaning water. Hrozny then noted another word in the sentence, eza, which was similar to the German word for to eat, essen. It all suddenly clicked. Winkler and the other linguists had all failed to crack the Hittite language because they had assumed its origin was in the Semitic family of languages. 
The cuneiform system of writing had developed in ancient Mesopotamia, so it was easy to assume that any ancient language written in cuneiform would be Middle Eastern in origin. Hrozny's breakthrough came from his realization that the Hittite language wasn't Semitic like the Akkadian language spoken by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The Hittite language was, in fact, Indo-European. The language, and likely the people, had in fact originated from somewhere on or near the European continent. Hrozny compared the Hittite language against similar keywords and phrases from Indo-European writings. He managed to interpret the rest of the words in that initial sentence and combined them to read, quote, Now you eat bread and you drink water, end quote. Hrozny had done it. He translated the first Hittite sentence in more than 3,000 years. The revelation of the Hittites' European origin reframed all past assumptions as to the ancient civilization's origins. As we've said, cuneiform was a Middle Eastern method of writing, and so the assumption up to 1915 had been that the Hittites had origins in Africa or South Asia, the same as Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria. But the language indicated that the Hittites had actually migrated to Turkey from somewhere closer to what is now Europe. Krasny had paved the way for the entire history of the Hittites to be revealed. The five libraries in Hattusa held detailed accounts of the administration of the empire, treaties and alliances with other kings, and most importantly, a detailed history of the Hittite people and accounts of what had happened to them. Winkler and Hrozny's efforts had revealed why the language had been so hard to crack. They had uncovered the geographical reason behind the location of the Hittites' capital city. And then, in 1915, with Hrozny's breakthrough in the deciphering of the Hittite language, historians pulled the stores of tablets from the ancient archives and began to read. The ancient chronology of the Hittites seemed to begin around 1700 BCE, when an indigenous tribe in central Anatolia, known as the Hatti, were attacked and quickly conquered by a group of warriors that had traveled to Anatolia from Europe. The conquerors adopted the customs of the Hatti, established a new nation-state of Hattusa, and came to be known as the Hittites. The Hittites had a rocky start as a society. Sometime in the late 1600s BCE, Hattusa was sacked by the neighboring kingdom of Kassara. Anitta, Kassara's king, burned the city to the ground. Hattusa rose again in the late or mid-1500s BCE under the leadership of King Hattusili I. He oversaw the reconstruction of the capital and the establishment of the Hittite Empire. Hattusili actually meant man from Hattusa. Hattusili knew that he needed to prove that the Hittites were a people to be reckoned with in order to ensure his kingdom's survival. So he gathered his men and set out on an offensive campaign to conquer neighboring city-states. Hattusili I spent most of his reign on military campaigns, and in a relatively short span of time, the Hittites had conquered lands in eastern Anatolia and northern Syria. He even laid siege to Aleppo, a major city in Syria. The siege was unsuccessful, and Hattusili ultimately returned home with his army. Hattusa soon became the political and religious capital of the entire region and sported a population of over 50,000. 
in the 1500s BCE, a city of that size would have ranked among the largest in the entire world. So what happened? How could the decline of the massive Hittite empire be so absolute? We'll discuss these theories after this. Now back to the story. Following the first successful translation of the ancient Hittite tablets in 1915, archaeologists came to learn that the Hittites were an extremely religious people. They considered natural phenomena the work of deities and that the environment was sacred because the deities were a part of it. An interesting characteristic of the Hittites was that they also assimilated the cultures of the lands they conquered. But what was amazing about this custom is how they seemed to display respect for foreign deities even after the nations that worshipped those deities no longer existed independently. In turn, the Hittites absorbed the gods and goddesses of the lands they conquered into their own religion. New gods were constantly being added to the Hittite pantheon. As the Hittite empire grew, their religion spread as well, shaping beliefs in far-off lands. Hesiod's Theogony, a Greek poem that describes the origin of the Greek gods, has been noted to bear a striking resemblance to kingship in heaven, a major Hittite religious myth written hundreds of years earlier. Studying the similarities of the Hittite and Greek texts, some scholars have gone so far as to theorize that the Hittite storm god, Tesseb, evolved into the Greek god, Zeus. The pantheon of gods became so large that the Hittites began to be known as the people of 1,000 gods by the nations they conquered and the surrounding kingdoms. Considering the large stable of gods the Hittites had incorporated, the great temple of Hattusa's unusual structure started to make more sense to archaeologists. The temple was made up of over 200 rooms, which was puzzling at first. But the purpose of the multiple rooms now made perfect sense when the many gods theory is applied. The rooms were used to worship the multiple gods. At the center of the Hittite religion was the king, who also served as chief priest. This was actually common of empires in the region. The Assyrian kings were also considered chief priests, while Mesopotamian kings and Egyptian pharaohs were worshipped as actual gods. The Hittite king as chief priest served as a conduit between the gods and the people. Some Hittite kings would refer to themselves as an adopted child of a certain god, and upon their deaths, thought to ascend and become gods themselves. As archaeologists continue to translate the clay tablets in the great libraries of Hattusa, more of the Hittite Empire's history started to unfold. In 1620 BCE, King Hattusili I passed away, proclaiming his grandson, Mursili I, his successor. Mursili I, like his grandfather, was a capable military commander. In 1595 BCE, he marched the Hittite army to Syria and finished his grandfather's unfinished business by destroying the city of Aleppo. In 1590 BCE, Mursili I returned to Hattusa after an extensive and highly successful military campaign. He was assassinated not long after that. For the next 65 years, the Hittite Empire was in a period of chaos as kings seized the throne by murder and sabotage. 
This period of unrest weakened the empire greatly and led to them losing almost all of the territory that Hattusili I and Mursili I had conquered, which by then consisted of most of Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. By the mid-15th century BCE, the entire civilization was on the verge of collapse. Then, in 1460 BCE, King Telepinu ascended to the throne. As had become the norm in Hattusa, rivals made a play for power and murdered Telepinu's wife and son. The assassins were captured, but instead of executing them, Telepinu banished them. This was a turning point for the Hittites, who had been suffering through a bloody period of their history. Telepinu's main concern wasn't revenge. It was stability. He instilled the rule of brotherhood and unity, drawing up the Edict of Telepinu. King Telepinu also took a very different approach when it came to foreign policy. Instead of relying on military campaigns, he signed peace treaties with neighboring city-states. Later Hittite kings would adopt this strategy, and soon Hittite treaties became just as effective as their military conquests. These treaties are what helped keep the empire whole. By the time Telepinu died in the early 1400s BCE, he had successfully stabilized the region, established peace with several former enemy nations, and brought the Hittites back from the brink. However, it seemed unlikely that the Hittite empire would manage to grow back to its former size without pushback from the other world empires that were becoming dominant at that time. The growing military of Egypt in the south and the Hurrian state of Mitanni in the east formed an alliance and invaded the Hittite territories in Syria. Vassal states in the west became hostile to their Hittite rulers and rebelled. In the north, the Hittites were faced with the Kaskas, a group of northern tribes who attacked Hittite border towns and started to push south toward Hattusa. There was no possible way for the Hittite military to defend all four fronts from their many enemies. In just a few short years, the Hittite Empire lost most of its territory, retaining only a small piece of land in central Anatolia. Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep III said, I have heard that everything is finished and the country of Hattusa is paralyzed. The theory that the Hittite Empire was eradicated by their enemies seemed to be supported by the events recorded on these clay tablets. It was around 1400 BCE that the Hittite Empire was once again on the verge of being completely eradicated. They had been attacked by enemies from all sides and large swaths of their territory had been stolen away. But the Hittites would emerge from this arduous part of their history stronger than ever with the coming of the King of Kings. Supilaliuma I was raised to be a warrior, and that is exactly what he became. A great military leader, Supilaliuma I is considered to be one of the most powerful Hittite kings to have ruled. He ruled from 1344 to 1322 BCE and was responsible for restoring the Hittite Empire to prominence. Supilaliuma I rebuilt the Hittite armies and recaptured lost territories one by one. He then reclaimed the Hittite lands from the vassal states in the east and west and the territories from the Caucasus in the north. Supilaliuma then marched south and crushed the Syrian army. In less than a year, much of the former Hittite territory in northern Syria was once again 
under the empire's control. The Mitanni state was the last remaining kingdom to be dealt with. But the Mitanni would not be so easily vanquished, in part because of their alliance with mighty Egypt. Fortunately, Egypt didn't want to make an enemy of the resurgent Hittite army, which was growing in power. Instead, Egypt decided to withdraw their support of Mitanni. Supilaliuma took advantage of Egypt's lack of resistance. In 1327 BCE, his forces conquered Mitanni, which would be ruled by Hittite kings henceforth. Hittite territory now stretched from the Black Sea to the Euphrates and the mountains of Lebanon. At this point in time, the Hittite Empire rivaled Egypt in size, and Egypt took notice. In 1327 BCE, Pharaoh Tutankhamun had come to realize that his predecessors may have blundered in not pushing back against the Hittites sooner, as they may have now grown too strong. King Tut knew that the Egyptian army wasn't strong enough to push the Hittites back from Egypt's borders. In turn, Supilaliuma knew that Egypt was too well defended to take outright. The two empires seemed to be evenly matched. But events conspired to create an opportunity for Sopilaliuma to conquer Egypt without ever fighting a single battle. Pharaoh Tutankhamun died in 1323 BCE. His young wife, Ankesenamun, wrote to Sopilaliuma asking to marry one of his sons, who would in turn become king of Egypt. Naturally, Sopilaliuma was suspicious. But he soon learned that Ankhesenamun had no sons and was adamant that she would never pick a servant to be her husband. Supilaliuma sent his son Zananza to be Ankhesenamun's husband. But before he could reach Egypt, Zananza was murdered by Egyptian general Horemheb, who would never allow a foreigner to become pharaoh. Supilaliuma was furious over the murder of his son and committed the full might of the Hittite army against Egypt. This course of action provides yet another theory on what may have wiped out the Hittites. The Hittites began active military action against outlying Egyptian settlements shortly after the murder of Supilaliuma's son. At that same time, a plague swept through Egypt. When the Hittites returned to Hattusa with Egyptian prisoners, they brought the plague with them, crippling Hattusa and even claiming the life of Supilaliuma himself. The cataclysm of a deadly disease could easily have been the reason the Hittite empire disappeared from time. But as the recorded histories continually showed, the Hittites were a resilient people who kept fighting back from the brink. In 1274 BCE, Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II attacked the Hittites in an attempt to capture the city of Kadesh, which was located in a strategically vital area near the East Mediterranean. This was to be a battle between the world's two greatest superpowers. The Hittites, led by Prince Hattusili III, destroyed more than half of the Egyptian army and pushed them back. Kadesh remained under Hittite control. This clash would eventually lead to the Egyptian-Hittite Peace Treaty. The very same treaty that Hugo Winkler would find in 1906. Ironically, it was soon after this same great victory against the Egyptians that the Hittite Empire seemed to vanish from history. 
The clay tablets in the Hattusa libraries simply ceased to archive the achievements of the Hittites following 1259 BCE. The puzzle pieces of who the Hittites were, their magnificent capital city, and their sprawling empire had fallen into place. But the final piece of the puzzle, the reason for the Hittite empire being lost to time, was still missing. If it wasn't powerful enemies or a plague that had been the cause of the fall of the Hittites, what was it then that brought an end to their empire? One theory about the eventual fate of the Hittites lied in the heart of Hattusa itself. Many of the early archaeological expeditions had uncovered what they thought was a tomb covered in Hittite hieroglyphics. However, unlike the Hittite cuneiform, which was cracked by Czech linguist Bedrick Rosny, nobody had been able to decipher these Hittite hieroglyphics. It wasn't until 2005 that the Hittite hieroglyphics were attributed to the Luwian, a people hailing from a neighboring state in Anatolia. This would have been in keeping with the Hittites' nature of incorporating other cultures into their own, co-opting the neighboring nation's form of writing. The hieroglyphics told the story of a conflict that had befallen the empire. Surprisingly, instead of revealing the name of some great foreign power that had vanquished the Hittites, the hieroglyphs told the story of a civil war that had torn the empire apart. When Prince Hattusili III returned from his great victory at Kadesh against the Egyptians in 1274 BCE, the king Mursili III, who was actually Hattusili's nephew, was worried about his uncle's growing power. Mursili III tried to strip Hattusili of his responsibilities and station in the empire. Seeing his days were numbered, Hattusili seized the throne and exiled Mursili, causing the outbreak of a terrible civil war that raged across the empire for the next three generations. The Hittite capital of Hattusa was built to fend off any foreign invaders, but not enemies from within its own walls. The strength of the Hittites was their code of brotherhood and unity that was laid out in the Edict of Telepino centuries earlier. With that unity broken, the empire started to fragment. Hattusili III died in 1237 BCE, and the throne passed to his son, Tuthalia IV. At this time in history, the Assyrian Empire was growing in power and in 1230 BCE challenged the Hittite Empire for control of the region. The pressure from the Assyrian Empire grew until the Hittite civilization supposedly collapsed around 1200 BCE. The Assyrians, unlike the Hittites, did not incorporate the culture of their enemies into their own. So if they were the reason the Hittites were wiped out once and for all, it would make sense that the Assyrians stamped out any remnant of the Hittite people and replaced it with their own culture and values. What's most intriguing is that these buildings were first emptied of everything precious inside. Gold, artifacts, relics, perhaps even the most recent archives of the Hittites. Despite Hattusa's fate, there was no evidence of a foreign army having invaded the city. One theory suggests that the Hittites knew that their empire was at an end and abandoned Hattusa, setting fire to their capital so as to leave nothing of value for their enemies. This is a commonly known military strategy dubbed scorched earth. 
Destruction by fire may explain the sparseness of the Hattusa ruin. Ancient artifacts have a hard enough time surviving dirt, rubble, weather, and the ravages of time. A massive fire, particularly one that was set when Hattusa was already in decline and disrepair, may have served to eradicate nearly all traces of the Hittite culture, with only the archives remaining to preserve their legacy. If this theory is to be believed, the question that remains is where did the Hittites go? Could they have taken their most recent archives with them? And if so, are they out there somewhere waiting to be discovered? The final puzzle piece of the Hittite Empire may yet be waiting to be told. The case of the Hittites represents a baffling historical and archaeological challenge. Explorers and scholars like Charles Texier, Hugo Winkler, and Bedrick Rosny sought to find out what really happened to the ancient civilization. But every discovery seemed to only present more questions. Even after decoding the ancient language of the Hittites and chronicling the long history of the once great empire, historians are still left with unanswered questions as to what actually brought about the end of Hattusa and the Hittite kingdom. Based on everything we've discussed, it seems most likely that the Hittites simply assimilated into the much larger Assyrian Empire following their slow demise in the 1200s BCE. As conquerors, the Hittites had captured and absorbed numerous cultures as they expanded across Western Eurasia. But in the end, it seems probable that they themselves were absorbed by a larger kingdom. Hattusa was meant to be isolated and impregnable, but the remote location of the city would have also meant that after it was conquered and abandoned, there would be no one around who could have maintained it. The other ancient empires all built their cities around populous trade routes, and thus their cities and cultures lasted long after their dynasties had failed. But the Hittites, with their hard-to-reach central location of Hattusa, did not have that luxury. In the end, it seems like the Hittites were too good at isolating themselves. Their city, their culture, and their history were all nearly victims to their ingenuity. It was all nearly lost to time. Thanks again for tuning into Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Joseph C. Muscat and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>